This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. A familiar and very popular guest is with us on Dreamland again. I want to welcome Joshua Kutchin back. Uh, Joshua has been on Dreamland many times, most recently last October, where we discussed Volume 1 of Ecology of Souls, a new mythology of death and the paranormal. Now we're on Volume 2, and why do you need to listen to this again? Because we're going down a completely new path here. Uh, Joshua has made some major breakthroughs, which we began to see in Volume 1. But now in Volume 2, we're going to be talking about things like the UF, ufology and the overworld. We're going to be talking about alien abductions in a completely new way. What do they have to do with the dead? And what about NDEs and people having abductions in the context of NDEs? I mean, wow, this is deep, incredible stuff. So let's get started. Kutch, I would like to welcome you back to dreamland good to have you again it's a it's an absolute pleasure to be here uh speaking with someone who i think um i mean a lot of ways you obviously and uh we're inspiration for this work so it's it's an absolute privilege well i'm so glad that i was an inspiration for something besides a bill collector (laughs) (laughs) you'd be surprised you'd be surprised so uh joshua tell us a little bit about your background will you uh because it's a, you're a remarkable man in many, many respects. Uh, I mean, I'm, you, you don't have to be modest, but you probably will be. But just tell us what your, uh, your, your uh, scholarly background is, for example. Well, the thumbnail sketch, I guess, uh, without treading too much familiar ground to people who have heard me before, is that I grew up in a household that was very open to a lot of different things. Um, And reading and and looking into these sort of fringe subjects was never frowned upon. As far as uh, the sort of genesis of my my scholarly background for this, um, I do have two master's degrees. So I guess if you get through that process alive, you wind up having a bit of an affinity for sources and citations and endnotes. Um, I uh, have a master's in music and a master's in journalism. of course, you know, the, the ironic thing is that once I got out into the real world, I'm like, I'm not really sure I want to do either of these things. So <laughs> so I, I continue to play music. Um, I don't play as much classical music as I used to. Um, but uh, I guess I, I'm one of the few tuba players who's played in Carnegie Hall and Green Hall in Texas, <laughs> two very different venues. But uh, I still continue to play uh, music quite a bit. Uh, we're coming up on Mardi Gras here, so it's going to be one of my busiest times of year. Uh, I am a classically trained tuba player. But uh, I really do think that, uh, especially my time in journalism school, has proven essential for a lot of the work that I'm doing now. Um, I think there's, there is a significant problem in a lot of the writing about these topics where people will say, I heard a story, and you know, they'll just sort of <laughs> rattle on without saying where it came from. And you know, so that's one of the main reasons that I, I try to bring so much documentation to the table. Not to say that every case that I talk about is vetted. Uh, to the contrary, there's some things in here where, you know, I don't know. But at the end of the day, the reader can track down where I read it and sort of decide for themselves. So it's also a form of insurance in a way as well. Yeah, I understand that very well. And I might comment in passing that I've been 
in Groon Hall and Carnegie Hall too. <laughs> and Groon Hall is a wonderful place. Uh, and it, I, you know, I did. Uh, I think I think I square danced in Groon Hall. Are the There's, floorboards still sort of? <laughs> And they move when you when you walk on them. Oh yeah, I've been yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, no, I, it's a long time ago, uh, but uh, that's a lo lovely, fun place. And uh, of course, Carnegie Hall, the best acoustics in America, in my opinion. Uh, so for classical music. All right, now we're haunted. We're haunted by something. We've been haunted by it for a long time. But am I right in thinking that it has really ramped up over the past, say, 60 or 70 years? Is there a lot more going on now than there was, say, in uh, 100 AD or 1000 BC? Or is it just that we're more in communication with each other? I would probably push back to a degree on, on that assumption in a way, because I think that it's not that we are necessarily more um, communicative or that these things have ramped up, I suspect, uh, and of course I'm very willing to be proven wrong, but I suspect that it has more to do with the fact that we view these things as outliers now um, in our modern society. Whereas at one point they were just sort of folded in and incorporated into just the tapestry of day-to-day of -day life. Um, and now when these things still happen, it's like, well, that's not the way we were told things were supposed to be. So that, that would be one thing that I suspect. If there is uh, a bit of an uptick, um, I think that it might be a response to a degree in a, a response specifically to the way that we have pushed these things out. And just as, you know, the tide rolls out, the tide's got to roll back in. And I think maybe these things have rolled back in into the margins of modernity as we've gone further and further. Free Dreamlanders, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is we'll be back. And the bad news is what you're going to see right now. We're talking to Joshua Cutchen. His book, Ecology of Souls, a huge compendium and an extraordinary achievement. Volume two, a new mythology of death and the paranormal. And it is truly, truly new. Uh, Joshua, where can we reach you online on the internet? Well, joshuacutchen.com, and I'm going to spell that out because I've been to enough uh, enough restaurants where the dinner reservation has been mispronounced, so I'll go ahead and spell it out. J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. No S, just like one cut on your chin. Joshuacutchen.com is where I try to keep... Uh, thorough record of everywhere I am and what I'm doing. Uh, there's contact links there. There's also links to all the interviews that I do, uh, as well as uh, past appearances as well. So that, that's that's your one-stop shop. Okay. JoshuaCutchen.com. Now, I knew that. And why didn't I just say it? Because they're listening to you. <laughs> they will come <laughs> to your website if they hear it from you. I've learned this from long, long experience. Now let's uh, go to a. Let's explore a little bit of the whole alien abduction phenomenon in a slightly different way. Um, now, one of the things that you talk about are spirit precursors to abductions. Could you explain to us what you mean and and 
what happens when an abduction finally follows? Well, this sort of ties into a, a stigma that you used to find in ufology a long time ago, the stigma of the repeater. Uh, there was a time, as I'm sure you're aware, where if anyone saw multiple strange things, a lot of the ufologists would say, oh, you're a repeater, which was basically shorthand for saying, you've had too much strange stuff happen, uh, you're obviously lying. <laughs> and I think your life is certainly a testimony to the fact that people can be truthful and be repeaters like it's so there's been a, there's been an interesting tide uh, an interesting sea change that has happened in the interim where nowadays i would suspect that being a repeater actually lends more credence to someone's story in a lot of regards because these things do tend in, in my experience tend to not as a as a hard and fast rule they tend to center around an individual now with that uh comes perhaps one of the most confounding problems that I pretty much wrote about in the book, and I still don't know where I land on it, which is the problem that I call the, the chicken and the egg problem, uh, which is in ufology specifically, do people have strange encounters prior to their first contact experience with UFOs? Or do UFOs and UFO contact open up and a sort of affinity for, for having these strange encounters. I'm not really sure. I thought that maybe I'd go in and I would find that, oh, people who grew up in haunted houses are more likely to have UFO contact later in life, or I might find the, the opposite. And really, it just seems split pretty much down the middle, um, to be quite honest with you. There are some people who have a near-death experience and then see UFOs regularly afterwards. There are people who see UFOs first and then have a near-death experience. And both those things... And even if you want to throw haunted houses into the mix, all three of those things are things that most of us don't experience. Um, most of us don't experience at once. And, you know, very few of us experience these things multiple times, like so many experiencers do. So it does beg the question of why these individuals have so much contact uh, of, of all sorts of different varieties, the sort of contact that we used to silo off into separate disciplines. You know, the ghosts are over here and your, you know, your religious phenomena are over here and your UFOs are over here. It just seems to really mix and match, match and, uh, and jumble in the lives of a lot of experiencers. So we have a, this mixing and matching though, uh, well, give me an example from, from your book uh the the weiner case the allagash abduction you mm -hmm. mentioned um the, that they had these two you'll tell us about the abduction in a minute and then um these two people as children had visions of ghosts which sat on their beds sometimes pressing down on it as they visited now the last awareness of that happening happened to me this morning at about three o'clock. I often have something pressed down on my legs at a, at, in, in the very early hours of the morning, especially if I have not gotten up for my 3 a.m. meditation. I mean, I've had all kinds of ways of being waked up, some of them terrifying, most of them either startling or in some cases like that, very nice because it's a very pleasant sensation. There's a definite weight. There is a vibration between my legs and whatever is there. I can't see it. It's always well enough below my hands. So I can't grab it. 
they're taking no chances, whoever they are. But what is this? Because ghosts that press down on a bed, are those ghosts? Or what are they, Joshua? What do you think? Well, I hate to be a bit of a fence sitter, but I, I'm not even sure I know what ghosts are. I mean, I, you know, there's this... Oh, con- give us some riff, riff, will you? Okay, okay. I'll riff. Well, you know, I, I think that as much as we like to talk about the extraterrestrial hypothesis having sort of a stranglehold on discussion of UFOs, um, I've never heard it referred to as this, but the DPH, the dead people hypothesis, uh, has an even tighter stranglehold on, you know, parapsychology and a lot of... Uh, a lot of ghost aficionados. And I'm certainly sympathetic to that because there are cases that seem to to behave that way. But at the same time, you'll find all sorts of things that seem to uh, run contrary to that. Um, one example that I love to use, uh, being a North Carolina native, is that people claim to see uh, George Vanderbilt at Biltmore Estate in Asheville, and they'll see him with a cigar and a brandy. And Vanderbilt was a, a teetotaler, supposedly. Now, I don't know if he was sneaking things on the side and he likes to do that in the afterlife, but it does open up the question to people's expectations perhaps playing a role in the way that they see these things. Then you have other cases like uh, the ghost of Mark Twain, for example, which is said to haunt several different locations if memory serves. So, you know, I, I'm not discounting the idea that our souls could to, could fracture or that there are multiple parts of us. I mean, to the contrary, a great amount of uh, a great amount of space in this book, Ecology of Souls, is dedicated to talking about the idea of polypsychism, that we have multiple souls within us. But at the same time, uh, some of these hauntings seem to run counter to the idea that we're strictly dealing with ghosts. Um, There's another wonderful theory that I've always been sympathetic to, which is the stone tape theory. Not to be confused with Terrence McKenna's stoned ape theory, (laughs) but the stone tape theory, which holds that... uh, Certain materials in the environment, perhaps minerals and rock deposits and whatnot, uh, somehow record uh, certain emotions, certain energies, and play them back under certain circumstances, which we have yet to determine. And there's some evidence that this perhaps could be what's going on in some instances, especially when you're dealing with a ghost who simply who simply walks past someone and never acknowledges them. Now, when you get spirits that seem to acknowledge the witness, then you're probably dealing with something a little bit different. But if it's just a replay, then maybe something like that's going on. So, you know, and this is not even starting to address the possibility that uh, some ghosts might literally be a psychic projection of the witness themselves, which I think is extremely possible. And who knows, maybe that's the, maybe that's the case with your uh, alarm clock system that you have going on at 3 a.m. Yeah, it, it could be the case. Uh, certainly, the 3 a.m. meditation has become such a part of my life and so wanted. I'm always grateful when I'm waked up, and I have never used an alarm on purpose because I want this engagement. I mm-hmm. want there to be engagement between me and whatever this is. And uh, I don't really know why it wants these 3 a.m. wake-up calls. I do know that I think about my work very deeply at that hour. And it's an hour that's known to be a time that's particularly good for that kind of thought. And certain traditions, yoga traditions, it's it's uh, expected that people will wake up at, in, at, at approximately an hour and a half before dawn for that reason. Well, let's now talk about this. We're, we're trying to stay on the kind of shadow line 
between the dead and poltergeists and ghosts and the kind of physical phenomenon because there's a there's something to be found here and we're going to try to find it today but for free dreamlanders you've got to find something else first we'll be right back we're talking to joshua cutchen his website joshuacutchen.com that's joshua as in tree and cutchen c-u-t-c-h-i-n and if you don't know what Joshua as in tree means, uh, go to out to the desert here in California. It's called Joshua Tree. So joshuacutchen.com, his new book, Ecology of Souls. And we're exploring this relationship between physical stuff and non-physical stuff. Aliens, maybe, and the dead, for, for sure. Um, okay, here's a, many stories in here that of, uh, let's, let's go to, uh, this one of Karen, uh, that really struck me. Uh, here she is, uh, a life filled with ghosts and poltergeists. You remember the story? I do. I do. Yeah. Uh, she was... Okay. Then what happens? Well, she she uh, was from Cheshire, and she uh, grew up with a lot of just strange things. I suppose that you would say that she was a sensitive. Um, but things really came to a head for her from a ufological perspective in uh, the summer of 1979. And Karen uh, was walking past a meadow, I believe, and she saw a blinding light uh, that came from the field. And... She was actually, uh, she actually became pregnant some short time after this, and she started having these dreams of um, basically birthing horrific children, as gruesome as that sounds. And tragically, she had a miscarriage from this particular pregnancy, um, and she came to believe that the dreams were actually predicting that. Five years after this, so this would have been about 1984, um, she saw the same light from her window, and according to her story, a woman who was basically um basically she, she had white skin and she had slanted eyes and she was about six feet tall appeared in the doorway uh backlit by this light and the last thing that she remembered karen remembered was that there was this intense feeling of cold that enveloped her and you know then she woke up in bed as tends to happen in these encounters sometimes months later uh, she was awoken by the feeling of a children's fingers, a uh, little child's fingers on her wrist. And they sort of tugged her awake. And according to the story, as collected by Jenny Randalls, her husband came into the room and flicked on a light. And as they did, they noticed a tiny orb of light that sort of floated up and disappeared through the ceiling. So, you know, if you take out, if you take out the entity with the slanted eyes, and you take out some of these uh, flashes to a certain degree, a lot of people would just refer to this as, as a quite touching ghost story. But then you get this sort of other layer that seems to resonate a bit more with the UFO stuff, and it leaves everybody wondering exactly what we're dealing with here. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Because, you know, we don't... This is an important show for me because it's so important to understand that we, we, we live by these shorthands and either ors, 
either it's ghosts or it's aliens. Either it's the dead or it's something at demons, for, for example. Mm -hmm. But those either ors don't actually work. I resonate with that 100% because one of the things that I'm very fond of saying, as, as anybody who's followed my work knows, I'm very sympathetic to the observations that Jacques Vallée made between the Western European fairy folk and a lot of the, the UFO literature. And one of the things that I'm fond of saying is, you know, I'm not saying that aliens are fairies and I'm not saying that fairies are aliens. I don't necessarily think either of those labels is, is accurate. Um, you know, to a certain degree, I don't think, as we just discussed, ghosts is an accurate label either. I think these are just all ways for us to try to grasp this completely incomprehensible numinous phenomena that we've been wrestling with for, with forever. I mean, it's very much like the, the parable of the blind men and the elephant, I think. Tell us the parable of the blind man and the elephant, just to refresh our memory. Yeah, so the shorthand is that you have several uh, individuals who have lost their sight, and they come upon an elephant, and one of them, who is at the front end of the elephant, says, oh, I can you know, feel it, I can feel it, it's, it's a snake. And another one who's by its ear says, oh, I can feel it, it's a, it's a big palm leaf. And another one who's by its feet says, no, it's not, it's a tree trunk, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can keep on doing this, this uh this sort of little experiment with, with different ways to interpret it, but they're all feeling different parts of the elephant without realizing that it's actually all, all those answers are incorrect. They're actually all feeling one thing, which is the elephant. They're just seeing and interacting with different parts with the limitations of, of, of their own perception. Well, that's the key, the limitations of perception, because, well, when you think about it, let's, let's develop the idea of the elephant a little bit. An elephant can hear very low sounds and has a, 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 a type of vision that is not necessarily uh, keyed to details. An, a mouse can hear very high sounds and has vision that is not keyed to very large objects because obviously it doesn't need to see those. Put an elephant and a mouse together in a room the elephant cannot hear or see the mouse. The mouse cannot hear or see the elephant. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means to me that maybe our perceptual systems are not enough to enable us to completely comprehend this whole thing. How do you, what do you think of that? I mean, isn't that a possibility? Well, I, I, I absolutely agree with it. And I, uh, you know, something that I, I was having a conversation with someone else. And when, once you step back and realize how much of our reality is defined by language, it kind of gets very, it gets quite terrifying existentially. I mean, the example that I used is, um, you know, we, we like to, for example, you take a, uh, an, Ill, an illness like leukemia, right? We like to think that we have leukemia studied very well we've put it in a box we have we given it a name we have a good idea of how it behaves this that and the other but once you dial it back to like a ten thousand foot view of reality and and culture and you see those names and labels sort of slough themselves off i mean leukemia doesn't call itself leukemia and you know all those ideas that we have of how it how it behaves in certain ways and the things that we can do to treat it um none of those are really hard and fast rules because we've tried to put something in a box that really never belonged in a box in the first place. And you can, you know, I use that example because it's, 
I find it quite terrifying when you <laughs> extrapolate that out to all of you know medicine. But you can do this with anything, and you realize that we are just hanging on by the barest of threads to a grasp on the reality that is surrounding us. And we do that a lot of ways with language. And this, uh, you know, you hear these stories, and I don't know if they're true or not, but you hear stories about people contacting certain indigenous tribes and the tribes not words for certain colors or words to distinguish certain colors from other colors. And even if that's not true, um, it's, it's again, one of those good examples of how language tends to bind and influence the way that we think, because if you don't have a name for something, do you even see it in the first place? So I, I think that, you know, beyond like, oh, well, maybe these entities are dwelling in a different spectrum of light, or maybe they're, you know, existing on, they're existing in forms of matter that we can't even perceive with our most advanced instruments. Besides all that, um, you know, even if they were right in front of our faces, I'm not sure if we would understand what they were unless we had a word to put to them. Yeah, that 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 inability to understand is fundamental because all we can do, we you know, we never see reality. We never do. All we see is what our bodies and brains are generating. That's what we our perceptions are always inside us. So we don't really know what's going on out there. For us, there is no out there. That's true of every single living thing. We really don't genuinely don't know where we are in the in the most empirical way. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you think of things like uh, a good example that actually pops up in the book is, is Fata Morgana, this this phenomenon where, you know, ships out at sea appear to be above the horizon. And that's not what's happening. But if we right. didn't know any, if we didn't know any better, we think that is what ha what's happening. So it's just it, we we are it, in a, in a more sort of again I keep on using this word existentially terrifying way. Uh, we're sort of trapped in these little our own boxes, the box of our head. And if you remove our senses, we have no way of of understanding anything that's around us. So I think it's a very short leap from that to entertaining the idea that there are things that I mean there you know we talk about things like radiation and light spectra and all these sort of different things, but there might be some sort of behavior, quality, matter, whatever you want to call it in the universe that we haven't even discovered yet. And that's where these things reside. Well, you know, that gets me to a great quote you have in here from Terrence McKenna, the great Terrence McKenna. So, 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 so tragically lost to brain cancer one of the most brilliant men I ever knew, and one of the men who dis disliked me most intensely and with most skill. He was, his brother doesn't like me much more than he did, but Dennis, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, if you're going to live and do and talk about the things I talk about, you're going to have people who don't like you. And, you know, I, that's part of my life and I don't mind. And it also doesn't mean because they don't like me that I don't like them or I don't respect their work. That said, Terrence McKenna said, and you quote in the book, our soul is so alienated from us in our present culture that we treat it as an extraterrestrial. 
he says the most alien thing in the cosmos is the human soul. Now, I think those are incredibly profound and resonant statements. And you, net, you next go into the hybrid program. And I thought when I was reading this, why is he bring up this, this split between us and our souls and then go straight into hybrids? But there's a reason for it. Let's, let's first talk about the idea that we no longer know what we are because we have lost contact with our souls. Can you sort of speak to that? Oh, but before you do it, free dreamlanders. I've got fabulous news this time, better than ever. The better news this time is this is the last break. We'll be right back. We're back with Joshua Cutchen, his website, joshuacutchen.com. His new book is Volume 2 of Ecology of Souls. If you read Volume 1, you must not miss Volume 2. And if you didn't read Volume 1, you don't have to start with Volume 1 because Volume 2 is self-contained. Self and it is what it's filled with are these fabulously interesting stories that of the kind that free you, your mind, deeply. They're, that's the wonderful thing about the human ability to tell stories. Stories are literal, real magic. And you will, you, you, if, you, if you steep yourself in the story magic in this book, you, you want contact, you're liable to get it. What about you, Kutch? Have you, have you had much contact? Oh, you could probably fit it all inside a thimble. <clears throat> um, I've had a couple of rather dramatic ghost uh, experiences, but beyond that, uh, nothing of nothing of the ufological variety. I mean, again, we just talked about how we're breaking down barriers between these things, so perhaps that's a bit a bit disingenuous. But the things that I've seen, I saw the uh, the ghost of a young Confederate soldier boy uh, in Stone, in uh, Stonewall Jackson's house, which during the Civil War was used as a hospital. Um, I also had a door slammed directly in my face uh, while on a late night ghost hunt at Waverly Hills Sanitarium. Uh, that's pretty much what I've had. I've had a couple things that seem kind of Bigfooty, but I haven't seen th those. Those two that I just mentioned are the most dramatic things that have happened to me. What do you think ghosts see of us? Anything? They know we're here? Well, you know, we were talking about these other hypotheses regarding ghosts. And one idea that I've always found really attractive is uh, that it's just basically a, a time slip <laughs> in both directions. So, you know, you hear these stories about entities all the time. I don't care what they are, you know, leprechauns, Bigfoot, ghosts, the visitors. And a lot of times they seem surprised to see us, you know, not, not all the time, but a lot of times in these stories, they seem surprised to see us. And of course, we're always surprised to see them. So I kind of wonder if in the case of ghosts that, uh, that there's not some sort of time slip going on there. And we're seeing what we think is a ghost when in reality, it's, it's a person who's perfectly alive in their time timeline, their time period. Whereas, you know, who knows, maybe, some of these older stories of visitors from Mars and whatnot are people perceiving time slips from the future. And they're like, why are these people dressed in this way? And what's this tiny little box that they're holding in their hands and things like that. Annie thought that box was very important. And she 
always said that she thought that this had something to do with the future. She said to me once that she said, uh, I think your master of the key was from the future. Uh, but, it, you know, there's a wonderful movie. It's very obscure. It made sort of a splash at first. It's called A Ghost Story with Rooney Mara. And it's it, it, the, the fun thing about it is the ghosts in the movie are just simply have sheets over their heads. So, you know, there's no effort whatsoever made to, there's no CGI or anything. They're just people walking around with sheets over their heads. But there's some fascinating things in the movie when Rooney Mara begins, to, her boyfriend dies and she begins to see these ghosts. And uh, she, at one point, she there's one ghost looking in looking out of a window of another house and she communicates with the ghost and the go and when she asks the ghost what he's there for he says i'm waiting and she says well for who and he says i don't remember yeah i <laughs> wonderful it, it is and it, it calls to mind you know a lot of my favorite media surrounding these topics there's always an emotional core to it you know i mean we can talk about big budget blockbusters where aliens are taking over the earth or you know scary haunted house movies but the ones that really stick with me are always ones that have you know an emotional core to it i think in regards to you know the ufo topic um arrival was was a fantastic a film that's really got to that sort of same emotional resonance as as ghost story as you were alluding to yeah that now that emotional resonance getting back to ecology of souls uh you this what what terence said i think is so critical that we are so alienated from our souls that we can't recognize them I think that's really important that we, you, we're we soul blind. I'm working on a book now called BIM, which it, a lot of it is about the fact that we are soul blind. And yet a lot of it is also about the, the physicality and alienness of the whole thing. I mean, after all, uh, my own uncle worked on the debris from Roswell and it was physical. And in fact, it's, been understood and and that metal is in use in many different applications in the world now uh and i'm hoping that finally that sort of thing will come out because uh uh ron moultrie the undersecretary of defense i believe is for intelligence said a few weeks ago the, that we don't have any bodies we don't have any materials we don't have any ufos and I thought, well, I thought at first I was disgusted. And then I thought, well, he's probably not lying. He probably simply doesn't know. But what do we actually know? Is the, is the world of the dead technologically active? And is it here? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Well, you know. I'm okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bow out and let you <laughs> unpack it. Bye-bye. Well, you know, the thing that I love about that that Terrence McKenna quote is that it kind of breaks my heart every time I, I reread it. Um, 
it just speaks to me on, on such a visceral level. And I was surprised to find that uh, similar sentiments were echoed by Paul Devereaux in some of his uh, research as well. He once said that he suspected that, uh, you know, these extraterrestrials that we meet sometimes in altered states of consciousness were a part of ourselves. And, you know, if you look at, if you look at sort of Jungian ideas of the shadow self and some, you know, psychology, um, some, some psych psychological ideas, it does speak to the fact that we've alienated and sort of disregarded aspects of ourselves. And in a lot of those traditions, like these things, these aspects of ourselves will find a way to make themselves known. And, you know, a lot of volume one is talking about how many soul traditions we've lost along the way, this idea of the wandering soul and polypsychism, as I alluded to earlier. Uh, so I, I do think that we're sort of at a deficit right now. And, you know, I, I hate to sound like a curmudgeon, but I think that the more and more we indulge this technological fetish, the further and further we get drawn away from these older traditions of soul and being in touch with, with who we are. I mean, if you, you know, if you take away a lot of people's, maybe myself included, we take away their hobbies and their occupations and their interests and whatnot, they don't really know who they are. Um, and that's just, that's a real tragedy that I think we should all spend our lives trying to get acquainted with ourselves. So that's the first part. Now, the second part uh, regarding, you know, physical uh, crash debris and whatnot, this is something that I've butted heads with a lot of folks over the years with, and I don't think they ever quite caught my meaning. Um, I suspect that there's a strong, perhaps even the, most important part of these phenomena are, are non-physical. Um, but that doesn't to say that they can't interact with the physical environment or even leave physical traces. And the example that I always like to use is, you know, ghosts. Ghosts, <laughs> I think we would all agree, are non-physical, but they slam doors and leave behind footprints. That was an early ghost hunting technique, was to spread out talcum powder and wait for footprints to manifest. So you have the non-physical interacting with the physical. And this is why some people sort of get it confused when you start bringing metaphysics into ufology because they think that these things are at odds. And the truth is the non-physical and the physical have never been at odds. It's never been our understanding. It's only a really a post, probably post-industrial revolution, maybe even post-enlightenment idea that these things ever were at odds. So the fact that you could have something that is, for lack of a better term, a spiritual phenomenon manifesting, you know, bits and bobs strewn across the desert in the American Southwest, I don't see those two things as really being in conflict. Um, and to the contrary, I, I do think that we have recovered some things that are very much like that. Of course, where I, you know, where I tend to break off from the pack is a lot of people say, well, these are bits of, you know, an alien spacecraft. I'm like, well, maybe, or maybe they should be viewed along the lines of something like, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Ectoplasm. Ectoplasm or saints relics or things like that. I mean, even some UFO site debris like angel hair has been very famous for being very physical and then just dematerializing when it's held in a sealed bottle. Now to the final question, <laughs> which I think is the most interesting one and, and one that uh, I think speaks very much to your uh, direct experience. Can the afterlife... Uh, can the other side, can that have some sort of technical dimension to it? And I would say that it seems like it can. And this is an idea that doesn't sit very well with us nowadays. Um, 
in our current modern you know society where we think of you know oh you die and you go to be an angel and you float up in the clouds but in a lot of these older traditions ancient egypt ancient china some native american traditions there was an idea that the afterlife was just like life here it was a mirror image and it had a lot of the things that we sort of wake up and have to do every day you had to wake up and do it every day in the afterlife and with that comes the implication that there could be technological progress and change. And what surprised me when I was looking into this topic is to find exactly how early this was, um, how early this appeared in a lot of ufology. You can find uh, conferences, lectures, etc., that were done back in the 1950s where they're actually entertaining this idea that people who died with significant engineering skills or whatever might not be able to build a craft on the other side that comes over to our side in the form of ufos now i'm not saying that this is definitely what's happening but when i heard that it immediately put me in the mindset of your experiences with uh constantine Raudave. yeah yeah just just to remind you folks uh we talked about this the last time we were together and i've talked about it elsewhere so i'll be very brief I was, there was someone uh, a year or so ago who was interested in having my implant, uh, had a CAT scan done on my implant. And apparently on some level, there was fear that I might agree to have it taken out. And someone appeared here, um, someone I knew uh, from apparently from the other side. It's a complex story and explained to me what it was how it and who designed it and it was designed he said by what man he pronounced the name constantine raw dive and uh i was perplexed by that but not so perplexed that i didn't uh after the man left uh go on the internet and google the name and i realized he'd met he'd mispronounced his name the name is rodave constantine rodave and he was a specialist in his life. He's now deceased and has communicated from the other side. He was a specialist in uh, electronic voice communication techniques and devices on this side of, and, and, and apparently is still on the other side. And um, uh, the interesting thing is the implant has this little these words that flash past your in, in your in a slit in my eye if i'm looking at a, a very white surface i can usually see them like right now and in on the white part of the screen uh i i can't follow them but he explained how they worked and i've been all through all that we're not going to go down that road today but the incredible thing is i have only talked to one other person who has this same slit with the words going through it in his eye. He is an expert on Constantine Rodave. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's miraculous, isn't it? Miraculous, and to me, it means it means this. It means I think I have so suggestive evidence. I wouldn't say it's definite evidence, but suggestive evidence that there is an other world. And it is the world of the dead, and they are trying to project into this world using technology. And I, but go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say I, I didn't mean to to um, 
to sort of for us to retread familiar ground. But I, I just I, I love how well that experience of yours sums up this idea of technological progress on the other side. <laughs> right. Um, and and interestingly enough, um, you know, if you look in some of the for whatever reason, <clears throat> the uh, the former Eastern Bloc and Russia and Latin America always have the, some of the wildest uh, UFO contact experience cases. I've spoken to friends in both those parts of the world. And they're like, yeah, our, our stories are wild over here. I don't know why. But um, in, in a couple of those stories, especially from uh, these former Soviet states, you'll find people who not only encounter the dead aboard the craft, but they are made it's made very clear that the dead aboard the craft have duties that they have to do. And in one example that I love, um, uh, someone was aboard the, uh, was aboard the craft and they actually saw a dead neighbor walking by with like building supplies <laughs> and walking to a different part to engage in a construction project. And I think that, that again, also sums up very well, uh, this idea of, of, of technological progress ha- continuing on the other side. Yeah, I, I, I think that I think that this there's a kind of breathing between two two realities and we move back and forth. Does that mean we never leave this process? We never die that when we die in one, we're then born again in the other and we go back and forth, back and forth. What does it mean, Joshua? I suspect you might be onto something. I know that you've played with that idea before of of our world actually being Sheol, right? Uh, and Just being the world of yes, the dead. Yeah. Yes, sir. And and, and uh, interestingly enough, if you look at some of the Western European fairy lore, there are indications that they would laugh at funerals and cry at births, which also seems to suggest that there is this reciprocal nature between whatever other world you know the the fairyland and and the afterlife were not necessarily one and the same but they bear a lot of similarities there seems to be some sort of give and take between these worlds that does imply i would argue basically a revolving door between realities yeah which and there's also isn't there an implication somewhere that you grow younger in the other world until you're reborn here and then older in this world until you die and then uh, in other words, it, it, it works, it works like that. So, and the, so that everyone was, in the other world is slowly getting younger and younger. The sort of cyclicality, uh, I'm trying to think, I, I think I've stumbled upon that. The, the thing that sticks out in my mind is that, uh, especially in, again, because I tend to focus on a lot of this Western European fairy folklore, there was sort of an equalizing effect where uh, a lot of people who passed away, if they were younger than 33, <laughs> they would age up to 33 and if they were older than 33 that aged down to 33 approximately the t- the uh, age that that christ was crucified uh obviously there's some some christianization going on in that in that concept but uh you know i think that you're onto something with that idea as well because if you look at um some of this, this subset of stories that you find uh throughout europe uh, of the midwife to the fairies, where some 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 individual, some mysterious individual, oftentimes a rider and cloaked in black, will show up to a young lady's door and demand that she come with him, and she t- he ends up taking her to what is revealed to be um, a a fairy dwelling, and there's a fairy woman who is in labor. Sometimes it's a dead woman that the midwife knows, and she is commanded to uh, bring that fairy child into being. So. You take that idea of human 
fairies into existence in those older legends. And then you look at some of these stories of fairies serving as psychopomps, as these characters who escort people from our world into the afterlife. Um, not Josh, strongly indicated, but you, it's there. Can you sure. define the, the word psychopomp just quickly for a little bit? Yes. Psychopomps are any sort of character. Uh, it could be an animal. It could be natural phenomena. It could be a deity. It could be a folk figure that escorts the living to the world of the dead. Uh, so characters like the Grim Reaper, Anubis, uh, Christ or God for the Christians, um, Hermes for the Greeks. These are all different characters and also animals like birds and dogs and horses. There are some indications that uh, fairies sometimes fulfill that psychopomp role in some of the older mythology. It's not entirely clear, but there are some definitely some suggestions. I mean, Gwynep Nud was a Welsh psychopomp who was made into the king of the fairies. So there seems to be a relationship with that. So... I think there's an interest, interest, interesting parsimony between the human midwife bringing the fairy child into existence and the fairy psychopomps taking the elderly humans out of existence. It, it, again, sort of reinforces that idea of there being this reciprocal nature between our world and the other the other world. The breathing, as you said. Right. Now, the, the uh, ancient Egyptians' religion was had an aim that aim was ascension a return to the stars specifically i believe the constellation of orion and the the pyramid texts are all sets of instructions for the pharaohs about how to do this in other words it's not about a reciprocal movement between two universes it's about getting off the treadmill altogether. Is this reciprocity something that's just natural and inevitable? Or is there a possibility that there are other things that can happen to a soul after we died, die, as in ascension off of this whole wheel, of, as, as it were? Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Egyptians because... <clears throat> You sort of had to thread that that needle's eye of, of mediocrity in a way because, yeah, you might ascend, but if you were too bad, uh, your heart and your soul might get devoured by Amit, the soul devourer, the demoness who was half, or sorry, partially a hippopotamus and lion. So an indication across a lot of these different spiritualities that you can break free of the wheel. Um, you know, that's definitely the goal of a lot of Eastern traditions. Um, you know, it's maybe I'm being a contrarian, but sometimes I just find that idea kind of, it kind of saddens me a little bit. I've got a lot of sad moments today, I guess, but I just think that there's so much beauty in the world that it might be kind of nice to keep coming back. Of course, you know, I don't know the beauties of Ascension, so maybe, maybe there's something to it. Um, but you do see the sort of reincarnative aspect across these older traditions often symbolized as a wheel. And there are indications that you can get off at some point. Um, interestingly enough, with regards to UFOs, so many stories, a lot of the back half of Ecology of Souls volume two is tying into these ideas of reincarnation. People who say that, you know, in a past life, they were an extraterrestrial or people who say that the extraterrestrials revealed to them the mysteries of their previous past lives here on Earth. 
And then when you combine that in with all this talk that I've had over two books worth of, of the connection between these phenomena and the dead, and then this obsession that they have with birth as well, it seems like really in a lot of ways, ecology of soul should have been reti- retitled a new mythology of, of reincarnation or death and birth in the paranormal. Um, but, you know, I, I do think there are things, other things that could happen to souls more sinisterly. You know, I mentioned Amit, the soul devourer, which again, soul devouring is something that you talked about at length as one of your concerns in transformation. Um, I believe it's Nigel Kerner was a researcher who uh, believed that the gray aliens primary goal was to harvest souls that didn't make it into the light, but actually ended up falling over the edge. Um, and that was one of their primary motivations. He, he, he believed that the, uh, the small visitors were some sort of drone that lacked that essential spark of life that their creators had, had, had not had failed to imbue them with. And, uh, that's that's another chilling prospect, you know. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that you that you find when you write a book about death and the paranormal is you end up going, huh? You know, death's not so bad. There are things a lot worse <laughs> than death. If any of this stuff is true, there are things worse than death that can happen to you. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, the two authors, people who were very close to Nigel, who's passed away, uh, on the show discussing the book and this idea of. Uh, a machine that might be attempting to either create its own soul or uh, gather souls from us. I want to go now to another subject, which again goes back to the whole physical aspect of things. We're going to talk about hybrids in a few minutes in the third half hour, but right now I want to lead into that by uh, talking about this business of taking of sexual material to me, this is an absolute certainty because it, it happened to me. And so when I hear stories of women having eggs and fetuses stolen and guys having semen taken, I think they're true. And I think they're true because I lived this. Now, what is going on here in relation to, to the cosmology and the and the way the whole phenomenon intersects reality as you understand them. Well, you know, there's some superficial comparisons that you can make right away that I'm sure you and the audience are familiar with, these older ideas of incubi and succubi who might awaken their victims in the middle of the night to harvest these things from folks. Um, but I suspect that this is a way to reinforce the role that these things have in our lives. And this is where I get into quite a bit of speculation, but I try to be quite clear in the book that it is purely speculation on my part. Um, I suspect that these, in some cases, because it's hard to say everything, right? In some cases, I suspect that these entities, the visitors perhaps, might be uh, might be stewards of of reincarnation. We recycle souls, as you so elegantly put it. Um, water bearers from the well of souls, I think is some of the phraseology that I like to use. And because of that, they are intimately involved, um, with the creation of new life. And again, it's an odd idea, but 
I kind of wonder if some of these experiences, you know, these you hear these stories about people going and seeing these jars and jars and rows and rows of of human alien hybrids and in, in containers. Sometimes I wonder if that's not literally the afterlife factory where all of our souls are minted. Um, it's an odd idea. I spend a lot of time trying to back up that concept. Um, but, you know, there is something to it. Sometimes I wonder, and this isn't to detract from people who have uh, their gametes harvested, um, but sometimes I wonder if if it's not part of this bigger theatrical agenda that we see. I mean, the example that I always like to use is that uh, one of my main arguments against the extraterrestrial hypothesis is that we have such sophisticated means of collecting DNA on our own planet, uh, non-invasive techniques. Um, and yet in a lot of these narratives, you see the uh, the UFO occupants like breaking out comically large buzzsaws and, and giant syringes and things like that that seem really quite barbaric compared to what we can do here on Earth. I mean, you know, I can collect DNA with a Q-tip and go down to CVS and get a, get a DNA test, right, or something like that. So to me, there does seem to be some sort of warranting of emotion that's involved. So I wonder sometimes if... It isn't the literal reproductive material that is the important part of that harvesting process. And if it's not all the emotion that's attached to it. And there does seem to be some, some emotional component, especially when you look to later things like the, the baby presentations, you know, scenario where mothers are yeah. given their human hybrid babies and they're, the babies seem to take nourishment from the human emotion, only human emotion without any actual, you know, milk being provided. And, and yet the babies are, are in your arms for such a short time. That happened to me and Anne. We had a presentation too. Um, a, a few months after the, uh, after the sex thing, mm -hmm. about six, six or six. No, it was, it was more like, yeah, six or seven months after that. This, and so so yeah, it happens, and but, but um, you know the babies are in this world, right? And and again, it's it's that skirting of of the boundary between physical and non physical. It's one of the most confounding things about this phenomena for me. Me um, too. And I, <laughs> all of but, us. But, sure. but, but, but I can't help but feel like Whitley. I can't help but feel like. Part of the reason we have such a tough time with it is that we've been gaslit by our culture into thinking that things like emotions are just chemical reactions in our brains. I mean, that obviously plays a role, but I think that a lot of these things have a more objective reality than we've been led to believe by our current culture. You know, the reason we have such a, a huge death cult in Western culture, you know what our death cult is? It's the hospital system and medicine that does everything possible. It's devoted entirely to keeping people alive. It's a little less so now, but I, I mean, when Annie decided to pass, to, to pass that she was finished, all of the caregivers were just blew up in our faces and went rushing off into the distance in tears. And uh, uh, I thought to myself, this is a culture that is, fighting death it's fighting death we're afraid of death and is it that we are afraid of death because we have lost track of the fact that we are not that we are 
living right now while in the body, also at an, in another level. That this body is a machine that we are using to move through time and gather experience, but it is not all of us. I think that's incredibly prescient. I mean, we used to have to deal with with death in a very much more personal way. Um, not not even that long ago, you know, in terms of no. in terms of our, our our you know current situation. And I do think a lot of that fear does stem from the fact that we've been force fed a lot of distractions and, and nihilism <laughs> to be quite frank with you. And that, that's sort of what I was getting at when I said that, you know, you end up writing when you spend so much time looking at death as I have over the course of writing these books, you start to say death isn't that bad of a thing. Like, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's part of the reason that so many people are frightened of these things, you know, whether it's cryptids or ghosts or, you know, UFOs, they're always thinking that death is the worst thing that could happen to them. And I'm like, you know, that's not really, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, even here in, even here in this life, there are things worse than death, you know, uh, hurting, hurting a loved one irreparably, you know, that's something that would, I would much rather die than have that happen. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I think that a readjustment is necessary and you're right. There, there's this, it's almost like a, a cult of life <laughs> more than a cult of death. This, right. Yeah. This, this, you know, preserve life at all costs. And I know that sounds, that sounds callous and I'm sure people could take that out of context. But what I mean by that is that there isn't a consideration of whether or not there are greater forces that sometimes have decided it's time for people to go. And I think yeah. a resignation and an awareness of that is the compassionate thing to do. Well, exactly. And I, you know, I think also being facing it squarely like Annie did, Whitley, this is it. I'm going. I'm finished here. And she, that, you know, it hit me right in the heart. But uh, she did it her way and she did it right. And she wasn't afraid of it. Um, now, we have reached the end of the first hour. So we're going to go on down the road. And I would like to thank those of you listening on the free side so much for being part of dreamland and i would urge, urge you to consider doing more because we we have video conferences you could probably actually talk to josh joshua and ask him your questions personally if he comes into our video conference room which i suspect he may and uh it's so much going on there's a wonderful warm group of people on unknowncountry.com talking together and there's no fake news. There's no trolls. It's not anything like that. It's a place worth being. Thank you anyway, and we'll see you again next week. Now let's, Joshua, get more deeply into this business of hybrids, because we've been talking about the shadow line, what's going on on the shadow line between the physical and non-physical parts of this. If there is a non-physical part, because it could be that we're just transitioning between two different physical universes, that's possible. Well, I, I think that explains. I mean, explains is a is a very strong word for what I'm about to say, but I think that helps to clarify where the visitors stand, right? Because if they're somehow involved in this process, they become a an either or, neither or sort of presence in our lives, as opposed to us being more of a binary, if that makes sense. We're either a zero or a one. We're either alive or we're dead. 
Well, yeah, we're either alive or we're dead here. Right. But when we're dead here, we may be alive somewhere else. Or when we sleep, we might be there. I mean, I, I'm definitely well, open to that as well. I think that's true, too. I, you know, I think that sleep is a very strange state. It's not understood. Uh, no, we have made not. decisions about it. <laughs> the same people who have made the decision that there is no soul <laughs> have made the decision that dreams are symbolic uh, 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 representations of what's going on in everyday life. And yet, it, it, now it's about, been a few weeks, but uh, a plane crashed recently in Nepal. Everyone was killed. I was, uh, two weeks before that, I had a premonition. A plane was flying along, and it's one of its propellers suddenly stopped, and it just crashed. And then here comes this plane in Nepal, and that's what happened to it. So that means to me that I, I never, never have premonitions. I am not at all in that space. So it's a very rare thing. But it means to me, it is another reminder that we just don't know exactly who we are, where we are, or even what we're doing here. I'm, I'm so glad that you said that because I say this to people sometimes, you know, that nobody really knows why we sleep. And they're like, what do you mean? We all know why we sleep. And I'm like, no, I, people know, scientists have established what happens when we sleep and why we need sleep, but we haven't really established why it's that state and why uh, we lapse into this altered state of consciousness that we do. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there was a time when I, <laughs> I'm on the record and a friend of mine constantly reminds me of this. I said that I didn't care about people's dreams. <laughs> and what I meant, meant by that is, you know, the people who tell you every dream that they have, including the ones that are really just sort of frivolous <laughs> and nonsensical. And that's not what I, that's not what I mean. And I've since really strongly reevaluated that, that stance because I do feel like dreams and whatever this other realm is do, do go hand in hand. I mean, um, in ancient in ancient Greece, they were considered siblings, sleep and and death. And the number of not only prophetic dreams, but dreams where there seems to be some sort of communication. And and if you look at the literature, the number of people who can't really differentiate their experiences from dreams. Sometimes they're clearer than dreams and clearer than waking life. But but there's a lot of there's a lot of ambiguity there. And some people will use that to toss it all out and say, well, obviously they were just dreaming. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not the point. The point, the point is, is that this seems to be somehow tapping into the same place uh, in a lot of ways. At least that's, that's what I have been led to believe by what I've looked at uh, to the extent that, you know, I think that maybe every night we end up astrally roaming. We have an OBE every night. And sometimes, um, as I'm fond of saying, sometimes your car breaks down in a bad neighborhood and that's how you get sleep paralysis. You know what I mean? So you're on your way back to your body and your astral self stalls and you get trapped at the lowest levels of whatever this other realm is. And that's when all the nasties come out and you have something like sleep paralysis. You know, interesting thing about that dream was that the dream was happening in the world of the dead. And mm. We, and that's where I saw the plane crash. And now the plane has crashed in it, but it's in this world. And it gets back to the idea that maybe we are in the world of the dead. Maybe we are the dead. And uh, that's why we uh, 
live in such a shadowy state of unknowing because this is the place of unknowing. It's the place where you gather knowledge. It is the dark. Now, let's go on down the road uh, to uh, the issue of hybrids and the uh, question of, of, I'm looking in now in the book, but let's talk about hybrid babies and and hybrids in this world because this is a a large part of my experience and of the experience of many contact witnesses uh so why don't you talk a little bit about what you think they are and how this all works well my ideas on this are a little bit unorthodox uh I've, I've, I've played with this idea some. That, that's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. You know, there's an interesting letter that uh, I believe it was Hal Pudoff, of all people, sent into Flying Saucer Review back in the 70s or 80s, um, who suggested that the fetal proportions of a lot of these entities that are reported uh, might indicate that they are perhaps stillbirths and, and miscarriages. And that sounds like sort of a bit of a macabre way to look at it. But again, if you look at that older fairy folklore, that's definitely where those categories of, of casualties would go is to the fairies. So there's something to that. Um, I think that the oversized head and oversized eyes that we've come become so accustomed to, regardless of how often that happens or how accurate it is, is something that that shouldn't be overlooked in regards to its similarity to us. And I, I sometimes wonder if, if, if these hybrids aren't in this other, when, it, when they occur in this other realm, if they aren't the, sort of an avatar of the souls of, of, of new lives as they're being created at the same time, I, I look at that, that idea of the hybrid as, being so potent and, and full of meaning. I mean, you look at a lot of these spiritual traditions. I'm thinking of things like Taoism and, you know, alchemy. And one of the greatest things that you could achieve would be the union of opposites, the coincidentia oppositorum, two things that should not go together going together. And in a lot of ways, I think that the hybrids are a bit like that. Now, at the same time, I, I'm <laughs> I'm talking all, all fancy and, and, uh, sort of uh, scholarly and academic-y about that. At the same time, there is, as you have alluded to, a, a physical component to these things. And I don't know quite how to nail that down um, because I suspect that there are a lot of people out there who say that they're hybrids. And if they took a genetic sequencing test, it would not reveal any anomalies like that. It might some, I'm not saying it wouldn't always, but I'm saying that there are people who have every reason to believe that they have been somehow hybridized and yet they are outwardly appearing completely human. And I don't want to take away from their experience, but at the same time, I also want to say, well, you know, you have this sort of evidence over here that it's not happening on this physical level. And that's why I do lean towards the idea that there is some sort of spiritual hybridization occurring as well. And you do find allusions to this. Um, the idea, of course, it comes back to that polypsychic idea, right? The idea that we have multiple souls within ourselves that can coexist at, a, at, a, at the same time. 
And you find this idea through a lot of John Mack's research subjects. Um, there's, uh, you know, a lot of these ideas, sometimes they'll call it a dual soul that someone has within them, a human soul and a soul of the visitors. And, you know, right now for, for most of our quote unquote normal friends, right? For most of our normal friends, we are way beyond, we are way over the line. <laughs> we talk about things like, like dual souls and the idea that people have an alien soul within them. But I think it's all a matter of perspective. Um, there was, allow me to, to explain what I mean by that being a matter of perspective. There was a conversation that I overheard between two individuals talking about reincarnation. And the idea was like, well, how can reincarnation be, uh, be true and there be ghosts because either if people don't reincarnate, why, why do people see ghosts? It's like, well, you're assuming that's sort of a one-to-one -one representation. Like maybe the person is, has to stay here for a while before they transition. Maybe as we alluded to earlier in our conversation, the ghosts aren't the spirits of the dead. Maybe it's a part of yourself. Maybe the ego stays here as a ghost where the true essence of yourself goes to another place. I say all that to illustrate how I have reconciled this idea of hybrids and dual souls. The, I, I think that we're made up of a lot of different things. I think that we're made up of a lot of different components. And the analogy that I end up using is that we are incarnated here like raindrops fall from a cloud and we fall down and we go into the streams and we go into the rivers and we hit the lakes and we go keep on going all the way to the ocean. And then we all mix up bits and pieces of us mix up with other things so that the next time that the raindrop comes around, it's not the same raindrop. It's comprised of molecules that for all we know landed in Australia and Toledo and, you know, Pensacola, <laughs> but it's composed of many different things. And that's why we have these feelings of, of multiple forces within us. Sometimes polypsychism, dual souls, this hybridization. I think that we all go into this, place of oneness and we come out and by nature of being incarnated in this world we have to sort of become a mirror of that oneness and being a mirror of that oneness means that we're comprised of a lot of different things and that's sort of where i've landed on it i don't know if that's true or not uh but it makes sense for me well there's a i it makes sense for me too i think that there is a possibility that there is that that kind of a journey is what we're on you alluded earlier and this has been in the close encounter movement for a while this idea that we could get too far down a road of technology that we could become trapped in it and when we were talking about the idea of uh the visitors being essentially intelligent machines that were here trying to find some way to have souls. I'm going to be interviewing a man who's written a book called The Brain Phone Prophecy. Stop corporations and the government from inserting a smartphone in your brain. Now, <laughs> you, you went pale. They are working hard on this. They're they're keeping it very much behind the scenes because they want to come out with it as the next great thing. And I think it is incredibly dangerous for a couple of reasons. 
One is it's going to be irresistible. And two is it is going to link us up to the world of machines. And I think that artificial intelligence will integrate with human intelligence. And the chance of ascension is at that point or of or of even being in contact with the larger soul that is oneself is really up for grabs. I just worry about it. You're well, talking about this. You're wedding yourself to the physical in that way. You know, you're, 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 you are tethering your outcome to the physical world. And I think that is completely at odds to our true nature. Um, you know, another idea that a friend of mine, Miguel Romero, has has talked about in the past is this idea that uh, any sufficiently complex system might be capable of um, harnessing intelligence or consciousness. So the idea is that, you know, Victor Frankenstein didn't need to hit his monster with a lightning bolt. If he had cobbled together a sufficiently complex monster, consciousness might have just found its way there. Um, it's an interesting idea. I don't know if it's true or not, but if you had something like that inside your head, inside your body, then yeah, you've, you've got another tenant in the building. You know, you're sharing, you're sharing your room with something else that for all we know has an agenda all of its own. Um, I would be very, I'll be very wary of that. And I think that a lot of what, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm going to say this. I'm going to think about both this before. I feel that even though we see implants from experiencers um, to a degree, I feel like the bulk of what we see in the contact modalities, especially the UFO contact, is more of a call back towards that higher self than it is towards some sort of transhumanist marriage of technology and the physical. Well, you know, my implant is does not tell me things. It's not an information system like an implanted cell phone is mm -hmm. going to be intended to be. It in it's in it's an inspiration system. And it was explained to me exactly how that works, that why the words racing past are so quick that I can't read them. They're actually being drawn from deeper in my mind, and it is working as a kind of muse. And in other words, it does not interrupt my freedom mm -hmm. at all. But uh, but the thing that's so frightening about uh, brain phone idea, they're far from anything as subtle and as deeply humane as that, and right. as, as soul feeding as that. They are interested in selling something and in order to sell something, they have to have something to sell. And that's going to be information and abilities. I mean, you, you're going to be able to hook up. We have this, it, uh, uh, we have primitive AI interactive systems now appearing, at primitive by AI standards, but incredibly sophisticated by uh, the standards of uh just a few years ago, I mean, it, 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 the kind of thing you could get out of Google 
and the kind of thing that you can get out of a, a, a conversation with an AI chatbot, AI <laughs> chatbot, it's just light years. Mm -hmm. And it's going to get more that way. And it's not going to be very long because before AI is essentially smarter than we are because it's so well informed and, and has so much information access. Now, you put that in a brain. I don't think, I think this is the most addictive thing that's ever been invented. I think it's a completely unstoppable, unavoidable ad addiction. And I think it's the end, in a sense, the end of humanity as we know it. I think that the research completely bears that out. If you look at sort of the dopamine hits people get when they get feedback on their social media. Um, and yeah, it certainly feels like we're living through a cautionary tale. <laughs> and I, it's amazing because I talk to so few people who want anything to do with this. And it feels like to me in the last, like, I don't know, really a narrow time frame. Honestly, since the last time we've talked, the AI uh, generated art and the chatbots have just taken off. And it does feel exponential in a lot of ways it does feel like it's we, we compounding interest in october yeah it's yeah, now Janu january and it's a different world it is it is it's 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 oh. it's bizarre and uh so so that's that's the that's the cassandra version of this right um if, well, if i could isn't the problem yes you say people are not really very this doesn't have a lot of appeal to people, but it will have when Joe gets it and suddenly becomes a much more powerful force in humanity than you could ever hope to be. Or when there, you. right? Or when there are strictures in society um, that force you to get it. For example, you know the idea that someone doesn't have access to a cell phone or a computer nowadays. It's like, well, you got to have those just to function. You know, um, you try to there are so many places that don't take paper job applications anymore. So right. <laughs> it's become, it's become a new standard of living and that's probably what will go that way. See, here's, here's my, here's my counter. Here's my, so I gave you the Cassandra. Here's my Pollyanna, right? My Pollyanna is that I have seen other industries. If we're just talking about like setting aside the integration, just the rise of AI art and, and chat GPT, I've seen other industries come to grips with these technologies and they always seem to hit a point and just stop. Case in point, um, I knew a Navy pilot who at one point was lamenting the fact that everything would be drones after a certain point. Well, there are a lot more drones, but everything is not drones anymore. Um, everything is not exclusively drones, I guess is what I should say more accurately. And there are certain things that we still need, you know, physical human pilots for. Similarly, you know, the music industry had this crisis back in probably what the eighties with the synthesizer, you know, people thought it sounded so good and it was going to develop to a point where it would be indistinguishable. It's still not there yet. 
you know, if, if you are a musician and you, you're a sort of a classically trained musician, even though some of the samples, you know, you can get samples literally from the Berlin Philharmonic for some of these synthesizers, and they sound really, 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 really good. But anybody with half of a trained ear can listen to them and say, it's still not quite a human, still not quite human playback. There's something there. And it's not, I'm not talking about the je ne sais quoi. I'm talking about like some really basic things of phrasing and, and the way that you transition between different lines still aren't quite there yet. So I kind of wonder if maybe we're not being a little bit alarmist because I've seen a lot of my visual artist friends concerned about the AI art and I've seen a lot of my literary friends concerned about the chat GBT and I'm just not, I wonder if it's going to reach a, a stumbling block. I hope that it's going to reach a stumbling block where, yeah, it's pretty darn good, but it, it, something about it just doesn't quite get over the hump. Now, of course, some people might argue that, you know, with some of this AI art, we're well past that. But even then, it seems like a lot of the best stuff that we're seeing with this AI-generated art has to go through multiple iterations and sort of has to have a great degree of finesse applied to it. And at that point, you're really saying, well, is it creating it automatically or is it now a tool? I don't know if I have the answers to any of that, but it's just something to consider if there's going to be a glimmer of hope at all in this conversation. You know, a young woman who is a, a, an extraordinary artist sent me a, a painting this morning. And I can't tell you why that painting is so powerful. It's an abstract. But all of her paintings are like this. They're just, they are. Because they're reflections of the human soul. She's got one of those souls that's somehow or another open to her 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 art and all the great artists are like that you can't say why a painting is a great painting and another very similar painting isn't and it's because of the soul it's the soul and i wonder and let's leave it here because we're coming to the end of the show if we lose lose track of our souls or lose contact with our souls if we will know that, or if the, the process itself will blind us to who we are now and soon who we were. I could continue speaking on this for probably hours on end. I mean, we'll we do like it again. Yes, yeah. I mean, we like what to think of this. What are you working on now? You must be working oh, on something. Well, that's a good question. So uh, I thought about, I thought that you probably asked me this question, and I said to myself, what's the best way to answer this? And I, I guess I'm doing a reverse Whitley. I don't know. <laughs> because, so, so what I mean by that is, you know, there was a point when I finished Ecology of Souls where I said, okay, I could probably step back from writing nonfiction about these topics for a while. Not because I think I got it right, you know, but because I, feel like I've said everything that I really want to say at this point. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I don't have other nonfiction projects involving UFOs and cryptids and stuff in the works. I do, and I'll never fully step away. But it did occur to me that when something like that happens, you really need to switch it up. So I'm working on some fiction. That's my reverse Whitley. I, I made the switch. I'm going into fiction now. So, um, Well, good luck with that. It's hard, it, hard it, thing. To oh, it is a different beast it is a completely different Very beast different beast yeah yeah so so we'll see we'll see I, I know that it's one of those things sort of a bucket list item i know if i never try it i'll always wonder if i should have tried it so well we'll see 
just remember this if you're looking at your characters you're not writing fiction if you're living in them then you're writing fiction okay no, write that down yeah write it down uh ecology of souls volume two joshua kutchen.com that's c-u-t-c-h-i-n.com uh onward my friend and uh, let's hope that apple and elon musk and facebook and all of those wonderful brilliant extraordinary extraordinarily dangerous addictions do not get too deep in our heads well, if not, I will join you uh, with the holdouts. So there will be. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.